The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We're told in Scripture that whenever we sin, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever we sin, we lose fellowship with God. We, are, we grieve the Spirit, we quench the Spirit, and in order to grow, in order to learn and assimilate doctrine, in order to grow, we need to be in fellowship with God, filled with the Spirit, and then we can learn. And the Scripture says that the solution for post-salvation sin is 1 John 1, 9. And so we always start with a with a few moments of silent prayer so that, if necessary, we can confess any sins to God and get in fellowship and ready to study His Word. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we do have this privilege and opportunity to come together as a body of believers to study your word. What a rare opportunity it is in the sweep of human history to have such a place, a place where we not only have the freedom to study your word, but that we have the completed canon of scripture. We have your entire revelation before us so that we can learn how to think uh, as you would have us to think, that we can learn about the uh, height and depth and breadth of your salvation and all that you have done for us in saving us and that we can continue to learn about all of the assets that you have provided for us spiritually that we might continue to grow as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we continue our study this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, to be able to uh, honestly and objectively look at the mirror of your word and to be uh, willing to accept the reflection that we see there in our own thinking and our own lives that we might be willing to bring our thinking and our lives under submission to your word. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8, verse 18. And we continue our study of Gideon. Now, in the last few weeks, we have taken a slight departure from the text in order to look at the application of a principle we discovered earlier and in the uh, previous verses here in Judges chapter 8, we saw that after the 
are at the conclusion of the battle, Gideon's campaign against the Midianite aggressors. He, um, he had crossed the Jordan and approached the inhabitants of the towns of Sukkoth and Penuel for aid and sustenance for the 300 troops he had who were in pursuit of the enemy. They refused. After he defeated the enemy, Zeba, led by the kings Zeba and Zalmunna, he returned to Sukkoth and Penuel, and there he executed some discipline on them. He killed the elders of the city of, uh, and tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men in that city and then disciplined rather violently the elders of the city in Sukkoth. And the principle of application that we saw there was that these towns had completely compromised with the enemy, with the uh, Midianites and the Amalekites who had conquered Israel. They were traitors and they had completely sold out so that there was no longer any commitment to the Lord. They had completely violated the covenant with God. And as a result of that, Gideon was operating within his responsibilities as a judge. He was uh, reacting correctly to go back and to punish the inhabitants of this town. application was that as believers, we are to aggressively seek and destroy all of the human viewpoint thinking in our own soul. Use the example of psychology. We did an in-depth study of why psychology is uh, not neutral why transpersonal psychology, as, it's, uh, as it has been developed since Freud, is built on a foundation that is religious and is a competing religious system with uh, Christianity. And the problem is that it has so uh, infected all of the thinking of people around us and the culture around us that many of us have, have quietly and absorbed a lot of principles and concepts from psychology that have affected our own thinking, and we're not even aware of it. And so part of my purpose was to sort of shock us into waking up and realizing that we have a lot of vocabulary, terminology, concepts that we've sort of bought into that's really what the Bible calls worldly thinking, cosmic thinking, human viewpoint, and is uh, unique to paganism. Well, I've got a great example of how this has influenced our culture this week. So before we go on with verse 18, I want to give you a little example of, of a... Uh, something that took place locally in the school district over in Norwich uh, in terms of a teacher training seminar. And uh, the reason I go into this is, first of all, because I want you to develop critical thinking skills. It's one thing to stand up and teach doctrine week after week after week and have people learn it, put it in their notebooks, but it's another thing for you to begin to develop the kind of critical thinking skills necessary to be able to spot these things on a day-to-day basis as you read them in the newspaper or in a periodical, hear them on the news, hear some politician say something, hear some educator say something, and we are constantly being influenced and uh, affected by this type of thinking. Second thing what we need to realize as we, I go through some of this is that we see in this an example of how by rejecting the fundamental anal- scriptural analysis of the human problem as sin and uh, God's solution as redemption as the starting point of the solution for man's problems, you, uh, you immediately start developing any kind of distorted solution. In other words, when, when, if you misdefine the problem, you're going to misdefine the solution. And even though there may be elements in the definition of the problem that the world system comes up with, and there will always be 
a, a certain amount of truth there. When Satan is counterfeiting truth, and when the cosmic system counterfeits truth, it does so. Uh, I mean, if an effective counterfeit is going to be about 98% right and 2% wrong, but it's the 2% that's wrong that's going to get you. So uh, we always remember the analogy that we need to have a lot of protein in order to be healthy. Rattlesnake venom is 100% protein, but we don't want to drink rattlesnake venom in order to get our protein. And although a glass of water may be 100% pure or 98% pure water, it's the uh, 2% cyanide that is dangerous. So we have to watch out for those elements. And in any system of thought, you can arrange the elements in the thinking in such a way that, that the overall picture is false, even though there may be a lot of elements within it that are true. Don't get suckered by the true elements into buying into the overall system and its interpretation. Now, this last week, this seminar was on connectedness. I find this really interesting, more psychobabble. The purpose of it was to, I think, try to give some sort of psychological framework or tool to teachers and educators for handling problem kids in schools. See, right away, it's, and the, the name of the seminar is called, was called connectedness, being connected. And the solution is is being connected, that the reason we have kids with discipline problems, with behavioral problems, the reason kids are going home and grabbing uh, or breaking into dad's gun closet and stealing his pistol and going down to uh, the local high school and shooting up all of his friends is because he doesn't uh, uh, belong anywhere. He doesn't have the right kind of social connections. Now, if we boil this down into uh, what we use in, in our vocabulary here, they're basic, basically that approach is saying that the solution to man's problems is fellowship. They define man's problem as a social problem, not a moral or ethical problem. And the speaker, who had his degree from Harvard, said that, that moral behavior derives from a feeling of connectedness. Notice the emphasis on emotion, the emphasis on feeling, and therefore morality comes out of, out of this feeling of, of connectedness. In other words, morality comes from positive social uh, connections. And then the opposite, for him, the opposite of connectedness was indifference. And he said that, that basically at the conclusion of his argument, he says he was saying that the reason these kids kill, the reason they have behavioral problems, the reason they have disciplinary problems, is because they just don't feel welcome. Problem is they're not, they're not loved. They, they just don't feel like they're part of the system. Now, I'm not saying that there's not an element of truth to that. What I'm saying is that's not the basic problem. The basic problem stems from the fact that we are approaching every, all these people, the kids and everything, from a position that man is inherently good and not the biblical position that man is inherently sinful. If you start from a position that man is inherently sinful, then the problem is that nobody's taught them, taught the kids how to discipline, control, regulate their sin nature. So it goes right back to a parental problem, a failure to teach discipline to kids. I was watching, and you know, just to go off on another tangent here, um, this whole problem with violence in the schools is being completely distorted today. Uh, this particular individual was saying, referring to the uh, rap artist Eminem, said that his lyrics shouldn't be allowed into children's lives, whether whether or not the Constitution says so. Now think about that. See, you start ending up with an end justifies the means. You go into an end justifies the means methodology, you're going to end up with an end justifies the means approach. 
and conclusions. And so you throw out the Constitution and freedom because uh, kids may have, um, there, there may be results of violence. There's always been results of violence. And he even went so far as to completely distort reality by saying that Charlton Heston and the NRA fights for guns to be available to children. What a distortion. See, you know, systems like that are just full of lies. Nobody's fighting for guns to be available for children. In fact, that, that brings up another point. I saw some um, totally di- m- confused news media person interviewing someone on television this last week, and they were talking to a congressman, and they said, uh, what, what proposals do you have so that uh, kids will not have um, access to firearms? And see, this is where people don't think anymore. We have to challenge presuppositions and assumptions. That's one thing I keep trying to teach. You don't let people ask you the wrong question. That happens in evangelism. You're you're, you're, uh, uh, communicating the gospel with somebody. They ask you a certain question. You accept the question as valid. You've immediately bought into their presupposition. As soon as somebody comes along and says, well, you know, what are you going to do to stop the keep children from having access to firearms? If you answer that question, you've legitimized it. Children, the point I'm making is children have always had access to firearms. You think that's one reason that liberals didn't like the movie The Patriot is because uh, Mel Gibson's character is giving firearms to his young children to go out and shoot the British. And that was part of the whole uh, American Revolution because people were fighting for freedom. When I was young, growing up, even in a big city uh, like Houston in the South, it was not uncommon for children to come, children, teenagers, high school kids to come to school with a 30-30 on the gun rack in the back of the pickup truck. But they weren't taking the guns out and shooting their classmates with it. Therefore, if they, if they had access to guns and they were bringing them on campus 30 years ago and not shooting other kids, then the problem today isn't access to firearms. And if people are going to define the problem as access to firearms, it flows out of a complete orientation to life that is based on an assumption that man is basically good and not basically evil. And if you start with the assumption that man is basically good, then your solutions are all going to be uh, messed up. And that is what is happening here. And so the solution then to the problem is that in order to keep kids from getting into trouble, they need to be connected at home, they need to be connected at school, they need to have a lot of warm fuzzies and you know, big hugs, group hugs, and those kinds of things. Now, I'm not saying that 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 is not a part of the solution. I'm just saying that the entire framework there is completely false, and this is what's being taught to uh, educators and how to solve the problems in the schools. And then the educators are, in turn, adopting that methodology and using that in their approach to children, and so it just builds and develops the entire cosmic system influence on kids, and we need to be aware of that kind of thinking. And it's not restricted to the schools. I mean, most of you who are working for any kind of a corporation have had to go, even in the military, have had to go through Covey training, and you've had to go through all sorts of other touchy-feely, sensitivity training type of courses in order to improve effectiveness. And all that stuff is predicated on a pure human viewpoint hogwash to uh, avoid using more uh, prosaic terminology and more descriptive terminology. So we have to be on target in our own thinking as believers to not be influenced by this kind of thinking. We need to be able to identify it and remove it. 
And that is essentially what Gideon is doing. Now, in verses 13 through 17, where we see Gideon going back to Sukkoth and to Penuel and disciplining those cities because of their rebelliousness and because they had completely sold out to the enemy, there's something very subtle that begins to take place starting in verse 18. And you won't necessarily catch it if you're just reading the English. There's very subtle things that the author of Judges is doing through vocabulary, through his stylistic arrangement of the, of the information, and through a knowledge of the culture at that time that go right past the average 20th century English reader. Starting in verse 18, the, the writer is choosing vocabulary, and he begins to uh, illustrate through what happens that a change is taking place in Gideon. He has moved from being righteously uh, or, or executing justice in a righteous manner in verses 13 through 17 to executing justice from an arrogant, self-centered manner in verse 18. Starting here, our sympathies are going to start shifting away from Gideon because Gideon is going to succumb to the same arrogance that he has been against. And that's so easy for us to do. One minute we are upset correctly about something, and the next thing we know we're taking it personal, and all of a sudden we shift from self-righteous, uh, self-righteous anger to arrogant anger and to self-centered anger. And it is easy to make a subtle shift in our thinking and to move from walking by the Spirit or walking in obedience to the Word to disobedience to the Word. And we see how uh, Gideon moves from being a correct uh, executor of justice in verse 13 to 17 to where he gets involved in vengeance starting in verse uh, verse 18. Let's read through these verses starting verse 18. Then he said, so we see uh, a conversation taking place. It is a question-answer session that follows the pattern of classic Greek epics. I've never had the time to go through this, but I think that the Greeks got their epic style from the Hebrews and not the other way around because of the way history should be interpreted from a biblical framework and not uh, from a uh, basis of a historical framework based on evolutionary presuppositions. So it, it follows a classic pattern of the hero epic, but there's a sense of tragedy here. And he is going to um, uh, question the kings regarding some men who were, who were killed up near Mount Tabor. He says, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And that's a bad translation because the sentence begins with a Hebrew word. if I can find a... starts off with a Hebrew word that looks like this. Apo. E-Y-P-O-H. And it's a compound word, and it means where, at what place. It's not what kind of men. He's not asking that question. He's asking, where are the bodies? Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? He wants to identify them because he has, apparently Gideon has certain suspicions 
about who they were. Now, Tabor was a mountain on the northeast side of the Valley of Jezreel. The Valley of Jezreel is where this battle against the uh, Midianites began. And apparently they had not only gone through the Valley of Jezreel, destroying all the farms and capturing all of the grain and taking it all for themselves and leaving the people with very little food or sustenance to get them through the next year, but they had also been sending out raiding parties who were guilty of a number of atrocities. And in one of these, we learned from this episode, and it hasn't been mentioned before, that apparently Gideon's brothers were all killed by the Midianites. This has not been mentioned before, but Gideon has been aware of this, and now he's concerned about, he's heard the rumor, and he wants to identify the bodies to see if they were indeed his brothers. So he asked, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they said they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. Now I want you to notice that, um, that here we see that, that the uh, Midianites are using a little flattery in order to try to uh, get their, have their way with Gideon. And when they mention this, I want you to notice this, and you ought to underline the son of a king here, so they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. Now, we've studied Hebrew idiom before, that when they use a phrase like son of, that is an adjectival description. For example, if someone were a murderer, they might be termed the son of a murderer. That doesn't mean their dad was a murderer. It means they are characterized by the adjective there. They're a murderer. If they were the son of a fool, that doesn't mean that they're... Uh, father was a fool, it means that they are a fool. They are characterized by being a fool. When Jesus is called the Son of God, it is not emphasizing His his lineage that God gave birth to Him. It is emphasizing the fact that He is full deity. When Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus Christ the night before He went to the cross, is called the Son of Perdition, it's not saying that perdition gave birth to Judas. It is saying that Judas is characterized by everlasting punishment because the word in the Greek for perdition, apolumi, is the same word used in John 3.16 to describe those who do not trust in Christ as their Savior. John 3.16 states, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes on Him should not perish. Perish is the word uh, or the verb form there from apolumi, which means destruction. Same word used of of uh, Judas Iscariot, that he is the son of perdition. So he is characterized by eternal condemnation. Judas Iscariot was never saved, even though he had a relationship and was connected to Jesus Christ for three and a half years. See, it didn't do him any good. The problem isn't relational. The problem is judicial, that we violated the righteousness and the character of God, and the condemnation comes because we are sinners, but God in His grace provided the perfect solution for that and sent His Son Jesus Christ to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, that by simply accepting that death on our behalf as a free gift, simply by believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we can have eternal life. So the term son of describes something about these men. They had a regal bearing, the Midianites are saying, just like you, they look like a king. So they're flattering Gideon. But this is foreshadowing. Because what's going to happen for the first time in Israel's history, there's now going to be the introduction of the issue of kingship in an illegitimate way, starting in just a few verses. And so the author uses this 
as a way of foreshadowing the coming uh, monarchical crisis in uh, Israel. And Gideon doesn't quite fall for this. Uh, he says, they, they look just like you, and, but he recognizes that they have seen a family resemblance. And he says, they were my brothers. This confirms to him the rumors he heard that his brothers were all killed. They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. And then he swears, as the Lord lives, if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. Now, this is very interesting. Because Gideon here reveals what's going on inside of his soul. He is not going, he, he's getting ready to have them executed, and the execution of Zeba and Zalmunna is not related to other atrocities they committed. It's not related to the fact that they have invaded and been, uh, and dominated Israel and stolen grain and food and been responsible for many other acts of violence. It is because they have killed Gideon's own brothers. So we see here that his motivation is an act of personal vengeance, not judicial authority. And he is making, making it personal, and it no longer has to do with the execution of justice. See, this is the problem you always run into in our society today when you start talking about capital punishment. Because capital punishment was not only authorized by Scripture, but mandated by the covenant God made with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And that has not changed, and the mark and the identification of the continuation of that covenant is a rainbow. And as I keep saying, every time you see a rainbow, you ought to be reminded that capital punishment is still mandated for today. Gideon uses the Hebrew word harag, H-A-R-A-G, which is an interesting word because it has two legit two meanings. One is to take life illegitimately through murder, and the second is to execute justice in the sense of capital punishment, to execute the criminal. And under the Mosaic Law and under the uh, Noahic Covenant, it is clear that the person who does not execute the criminal is viewed as being an accomplice of the murderer by failing to take uh, the, the loss of life of the victim and being concerned about the victim uh, seriously. Whenever you let a murderer survive, what you are doing is you are saying the life of the victim really didn't matter. And that's the tragedy, that's the way human viewpoint turns things around. So Gideon is going to use this word murder or execute here, and the author uses a play on words here to bring out the point. He says, Gideon says, if you were, they were my brothers, as the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. Now, he could be saying execute, but the writer uses this specific word. There's seven different words in Hebrew for the taking of life. The one that always comes to mind is in Exodus chapter 20, when you read the Ten Commandments, and it's translated poorly in the King James Version, Thou shalt not kill, and you always have pacifists and anti-capital punishment crowds running around ignorantly spouting off the King James Version, Thou shalt not kill. In the Hebrew, the word for kill in Exodus 20 is ratzach, which means to commit murder. It's homicide, it's a technical term. There's seven different words in Hebrew for the taking of life. And the author here uses harag because it has this double sense. But what we're going to see as we look down at 
as we look down at verse 21, that when Zeba and Zalmuda respond to this, they say, why don't you rise up yourself? See, in the, in the meantime, Gideon tries to get his young son to, to uh, execute them. And they respond, why don't you do it yourself and fall on us? And the Hebrew word for fall there is not nafal, which means to fall. It is paga. Paga, which means to take life in an illegitimate manner based on a capricious, selfish whim. See, they've got Gideon nailed here. They understand that he's shifted to personal vengeance and he's not making a decision based on justice. He's making a decision based on a personal vengeance. It is capricious and it is unjustified. In verse 19, Gideon indicates clearly what his motive is, that it's purely personal. And then he tries to get his son to do this. And the fact that he gets his youngest son to do this is reminiscent of a Canaanite um, a blood initiation rites. And what we're seeing here by bringing in this context is that Gideon is beginning to operate more and more like the pagans around him. He really doesn't understand much of the word. We saw that when we started this study of Gideon back in chapter 6, that he didn't know much about God. He didn't understand much about the Old Testament. He didn't understand the purpose of divine discipline and suffering. And because of his failure to have doctrine in the soul, because of his doctrinal ignorance... He, he easily goes back, and when he gets in this pressure situation, he easily reverts to the pagan values that he has uh, imbibed as he has grown up. And so he tries to get his youngest son, or his firstborn son, Jether, who is just a young lad, probably not more than 12 or 13, to do this, but we're told that he was afraid because he was still a youth. He's not ready for this, and so Zeba and Zalmunna then challenge him, and Gideon, we're told, arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments which were on the camel's necks. These were the decorations of royalty that they wore on their camels. And the fact that Gideon is going to take them for his own indicates that he is starting to think in terms of being king. He is going to take for himself the trappings of monarchy. This is foreshadows what's about to take place in verse 22. There we read the men of Israel. Notice it says the men of Israel. This was a large group. It could have been his army coming together and voting for him. They were from various tribes in Israel. It could have been a larger group, but they came as representatives of the nation. Just a little aside here. Uh, we're going to see in the next couple of chapters the answers to, to a little trivia question that you can, you can always drop on somebody. You can ask him, who was the first king of Israel? 99% of the time, somebody's going to say Saul. It's not Saul. It's Abimelech, who is Gideon's son. Gideon, and that occurs in the next chapter. Gideon is going to uh, have false humility. This is really a sham in verse 22. It's pseudo-humility. The men of Israel come to Gideon and they say, rule over us. We voted. We want you to be king. They don't use the word, it's interesting though, they don't use the word king or the verb for from that noun in this passage. That would be the Hebrew word uh, malach, to rule, from melech, king. But they use another word for ruling, mashal. And they say, rule over us both you and your son and your son's son. They want a dynasty here. They want to be like all of the other nations. They want to have a king. And this foreshadows an ultimate problem that we see in 
judges. Now, before we understand the significance of this, let's remind ourselves why this author is writing judges. Twice he states that there was no king in the land during the period of the judges, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, what we're going to find out in verse 9 is there was a king. There was a pretender to the throne, Abimelech. There was a so-called king, but he's not a God-ordained king. He is not placed there by God. When the writer of Judges says there was no king in Israel, he's really stating that, and, and then he goes on to say in the next sentence, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They are doing what's right in their own eyes here. They're not obeying God. They have rejected God as king. Israel was set up at this point to be a theocracy. That means God was viewed as the executive branch of government. God was the king of Israel. But they have rejected God. They don't want to have anything to, with, to do with God. And it reveals that the people have absolutely no positive spiritual inclination at this point. They've rejected the Mosaic Law. They don't even go back to Deuteronomy uh, 17 to discover what the Scripture says about the role of a king or how a king is to be appointed or what the qualifications are a king of a king are supposed to be. They are doctrinally ignorant. They have rejected doctrine. And all they want to be is like everybody else. They want to, and that will come up in 1 Samuel 8 when, they finally, when God finally does give them a king. They say, God, give us a king so we can be like all the other nations. We want to be like everybody else, God. We don't want to be distinct as believers anymore. We just want to be like the rest of the world. And so that's their attitude here. We want to make you king because you're the one who delivered us from the hand of Midian. Now, was it Gideon who delivered them? No, it was God. In God's grace, He delivered them. Did He do it because Israel had to turn to Him? No. We went back to Genesis, I mean, Galatians chapter, Judges chapter 6 to, to look at the initial situation when the Midianites had come in and were overrunning the country. They did this on an annual basis. All it says is that the people cried out to God. Lord, we're miserable. Lord, take it away. Quit the pain. Quit the discipline. They never turned to God. They did not uh, turn their back on the idols. They did not reject uh, the worship of the Baalim, the Canaanite fertility gods. They just cried out to God from their own misery, just like a lot of people do when they get in divine discipline. There's no real repentance, as the Bible defines it, which means to change your mind or your thinking toward God and move from disobedience and rejection of doctrine to uh, obedience and positive volition toward doctrine and making doctrine the number one priority in your life. So they've they're not had any sort of change of attitude. They're not at all concerned with God's plan or God's law for Israel. They just want to be like everybody else. But Gideon, notice Gideon's response in verse 23. It's on the surface, it's, it's deceptive if you don't understand what's going on in, the, in this passage. Gideon says, I won't rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. So he's, he's showing a certain level of, uh, uh, of obedience here. And many people think, well, this is the high point of Gideon's life because he rejects the kingship. And this shows that at this point he's still being obedient. But he's not. He says the Lord shall rule over you. But we've already seen that he has started to act like a king. He has started. He wants the trappings of kingship. He's taken the spoils of war as they were his right, as if they were his right, just like the pagan kings surrounding them would do. And he's going to continue to act like a king all through from here down to verse 32. When Gideon dies, we're going to see that one thing after another that he does is is the standard operating procedure for any 
oriental despot at this time in history. So he's like a lot of Christians who say the right things but don't mean it. He's like a lot of people who say, say in false humility that, oh, that, I, I'm not really do that, don't, don't, don't give that to me, don't honor me with that, and yet that's not what they want. They really want all of the accolades and all of the honor. They're just uh, showing false humility, and that's where Gideon is. There's no, and I want you to notice, there is no indication yet, and there will not be, that there is any gratitude on the people's part to God for his deliverance. They're claiming it was Gideon. Remember the battle cry when they went into war? For, for the, the sword of the Lord and the sword of Gideon, that foreshadowed it. It wasn't the sword of the Lord and the sword of Gideon. It was just the sword of the, the Lord. But from the very beginning, they're not willing to give 100% allegiance to the Lord. So Gideon rejects the offer of kingship, but he continues to act. He turns right around in his rejection. He hardly even takes a breath between the sentences, and he goes on to to request the rights of a monarch. In verse 24, Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. In other words, the Midianites were descendants of uh, Abraham's son by Hagar, Ishmael, and it was characteristic of their culture, notice, of of the pagan culture there, to wear earrings. Now, I have not gone into... Uh, extended development of this subject, but it's always it's an issue today, and I thought that this would be a good point to bring it out. In Leviticus, there is a, a prohibition against tattoos for the Jews; they're not to have tattoos, and there also seems to be sort of sort of a negative thing in Scripture for any kind of so-called body art, body piercing, all of that, which is very popular today. If you notice that uh, one of the things that struck me. When I moved up here from the south, is that there seemed to be uh, about twice as many women getting tattoos up here than there were down south. Now it's made its way down there. It's very popular. You go up to the west coast; it's popular there. What's well, produced this? Well, first of all, I want you to be clear that the scripture is not saying this is sin. Well, the, script, the reason the scripture forbade the Jews to con- have certain practices to dress certain ways was because that was always associated with a pagan outlook on life, a pagan outlook on the body, that in, in a scriptural viewpoint, the body, physical appearance, is not the issue. The issue is what's in the soul. And yet, body art, body decoration, all of this draws attraction to the body and makes that the primary thing as opposed to the beauty and attractiveness of the soul. And so, as, you, as a culture slips more and more into a pagan way of thinking, they begin to adopt pagan practices. It's, it's interesting. Up until the uh, mid-60s, very few people in our culture were involved in body piercings and body art. Uh, there's a, there was a display for several months down at the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art on body art. went down there, picked up a thick book on the history of body art, and in the introduction... The writer makes the point, of course, all the authors in here are positive to body art. And in the introduction, he makes the observation that what made body art tattooing uh, acceptable in the cultural mainstream of the U.S. was that there was a worldview shift that took place in the 60s. And when it was the same worldview shift that made 
uh, America open to Eastern mysticism, and many uh, Christian historians will make a point of the fact that, that it was in the early 60s that we finally uh, finished out all of our Protestant capital that was left over from the founding fathers, from the uh, Puritans who founded the nation, and 19th century uh, biblical, the residue of biblical thinking that, that still survived in the nation. And so the 60s saw a major transformation. So the point is that, that in many, many ways we adopt practices that are um, reflective not of, of a Christian background, a Christian view of even the body, but we pick up these ideas from paganism, and we don't even know it. And uh, this was one of the things that characterized the Ishmaelites was this gold earrings, and they're going to make an issue out of this, and he wants all their gold, and so they all gave it to them. He's asking for the spoils of war. This is due him. He's, this is the typical procedure of a monarch. Verse 26, we're told that the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Now, if you take that and you calculate that in terms of modern value in U.S. dollars, that comes to 3.2 million U.S. dollars. So he's getting quite a quite a good chunk of change here for his victory over the Midianites. And besides that, he took the crescent ornaments, all the trappings and, and emblems of monarchy. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, besides the neck bands that were on the camel's neck, and he, so he took all the trappings of royalty for himself, and that's now his own possession, and he's going to utilize that. And then we're told in verse 27 that he made an ephod. He made an ephod and placed it in his city, Ophrah. Now, what's interesting here is we see, learn two things, that he moves away from his dad's home and he establishes his own city, which will become a, a virtual capital of Israel because everybody's going to come there to worship this ephod. Now, an ephod is a priestly garment. And this word, though, it, it, the way it's used here, it's, like, it's, it's always troubled me that everybody comes and worships the garment. But if you look at the word uh, in its terms of its cognate, ipatu, in the, the an ipatu not only refers to the garment itself, but the image that it was placed on. So the picture here is not just that he sets up this ephod that becomes a, uh, an object of idol worship, but the ephod itself was probably placed on an idol. And this was set up as an object of worship and we're told that all Israel played the harlot there. Now, the term harlot there, that just picks up the old English concept. But they are, uh, the, the concept of infidel, sexual infidelity, uh, adultery, and fornication has as its root meanings unfaithfulness to a covenant. That's why it's applied in marriage. When one marriage partner is unfaithful to their marriage covenant, that is adultery. And going to a, a prostitute or harlot is uh, a sign of unfaithfulness to that covenant. And so it is then applied to the relationship between the believer and God. And in Israel, they had a covenant with God. But whenever they would go to false gods, they were breaking that covenant. They were being unfaithful to God. So that is the significance here. They immediately are led into idolatry by Gideon. And he sets up this ephod in his new hometown, and that becomes the capital for Israel. And everyone goes there, and then we're told, so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So he goes from, uh, very quickly, from victory to failure, 
and goes right into idolatry and he just uh, keeps uh, going further and further into spiritual reversionism and he is a complete failure in the spiritual life. Now, doesn't that give you hope? See, Gideon's mentioned in Hebrews 11 because at one point in time in his life, he trusted God. And so in that, he's an example of faith. But after that, he's a failure for the rest of his life. We're told in verse 28, So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel. They did not lift up their heads anymore. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So that summarizes Gideon's judgeship. And that for the next 40 years, there, is, there are no longer any invasions by foreign powers uh, in the land. Now we see the legacy of Gideon beginning in verse 29. Then Jeroboam, notice the shift in name. We are told back in Judges chapter 6 that after Gideon was called by God, he went out in the dead of night with some of his uh, servants, household servants, and he destroyed the, it was like a small temple that was set up there with, to, for the worship of Baal. And apparently his father was a priest in Baal worship, and his father had set this up, and so the surrounding region all came to Gideon's home to worship Baal. And when Gideon came in with a, with a couple of oxen and tore down this shrine to Baal, his father came out and gave him this name, Jeroboam. Now, when I taught that, I made the point that Jeroboam was probably Gideon's primary name and Gideon was his secondary name. Gideon means a hewer. Gideon emphasizes his... He's only called Gideon in the passages where he's obedient to God and his doing what God wants him to do and he's pictured as God's uh, instrument to destroy the pagan forces. But whenever he is pictured... In terms of his spiritual depravity, we go back to this word Jeroboam, and that is because the, it's, it's misconstrued, I think, in the English. We get the idea that, that when, when his dad calls him Jeroboam, he says, let, it's transliterated, let Baal contend, and people take that to mean, well, if, if, um, if Baal is really God, he'll come back and he'll take care of himself. And it's really more of a prophecy that Baal will eventually contend and rule out. He's, he's using a little foreshadow. The author uses that to foreshadow the fact that Gideon will eventually succumb to the pagan worship of, uh, of Baal worship. And so when we come to verse 29, there is a shift back and forth between the names. In verse 29, he's Jeroboam. In verse 30, he's Gideon. In verse 32, he's Gideon. In verse 33, he's Gideon. And then back in thir- then we get to 35, and he's Jeroboam again. Jeroboam is at the beginning and the end. That's framing the passage. And what the author wants us to pay attention to is the fact that he's going back to this name to indicate the negative characteristics of Jeroboam, of Gideon, that he is in spiritual failure at this point. Verse 29, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now, the word there for lived is going to be the Hebrew word yasha. Y-A-S-H-A-B. It's really pronounced almost like a V. And its primary meaning is not to dwell or to live. Its primary meaning is to sit. It is used of a king sitting upon his throne. And so when we are told that Jeroboam, the son of Joash went and lived in his own house, 
He's not, that's badly translated, he went and sat upon a throne in his own house. He is establishing himself as a dynastic head by how he is acting. He's acting like a king. Then we're told in verse 30, now Gideon had 70 sons. Now, see, the author is indicating he's not just acting like a king, he's acting like a Canaanite king. Gideon had 70 sons. According to uh, archaeological discoveries at a town called Ugarit, which is in the northeast of the area we call Israel, which was a Canaanite city at approximately this same time, according to the uh, Ugarit records, they, we know that in their uh, pantheon of gods, El was the chief god, and Asherah was his wife or consort, and El and Asherah had 70 sons. And so the author is assuming that the reader, and any Jew at that time would have understood this, that the reader understood Canaanite mythology. And so when he tells us that Gideon had 70 sons, he's saying that Gideon is acting like a Canaanite god. He literally had 70 sons, but he brings out this point to indicate uh, just another characteristic of Gideon, that he has succumbed to the paganism of the culture around him. He's acting like a king. He has 70 sons. Now, now, if you stop there, most of the women here would be cursing him. I'm glad they're not his wife. But we're then told that he had many wives. This, is, again, is a characteristic of, of a pagan kings, is that they would have a harem. Hold your place here and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17, and we're going to see how all of this is a direct violation of the Mosaic stipulations for kingship. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, you, and, and you say, in other words, God is, recognizes the fact that they're ultimately going to reject him as king and they're going to demand a king. And you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. So first of all, you can't have a king unless I choose him. And so we see a violation there. They're not concerned at all about God's choice for king. And he says, you shall set a king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. He's not to uh, build up his own stable at the expense of the people. He is not to uh, promote himself at the expense of the people. Uh, Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now, let's just go back to Judges 9. So immediately we see that Gideon is completely violating everything in the Mosaic Law. He's in this He's developed tremendous wealth. He's uh, promoting his own prestige and position. And he is multiplying wives. He has numerous wives who give him 70 sons. And then he goes beyond that and he has a Canaanite concubine in verse 31. And that's also forbidden by the Mosaic Law. He was not to have a foreign wife. And he takes a concubine in Shechem. Now, Shechem was the scene of the horrible episode between... uh, 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 Jacob and uh, his uh, daughter Dinah and a couple of the other brothers went there and uh, uh, Judah took, took a wife from Shechem and they were involved in paganism. So if you were a Jew and you read Shechem, you immediately brought the Genesis background with you and you realize he's talking about a, a pocket of Canaanites in the midst of the land. And so Gideon is going to 
take a Canaanite wife, and she bears him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Now, there's only three other people in the Scripture named Abimelech, and they're all Philistines. And two of them are Philistine kings. And if you break down the name Abimelech, the Hebrew word for father is Ab, A-B, Ab. We see that in the name Avram, my father is great. We see it in the name Avraham, uh, father of multitudes. Av, A-V means father. The I is a first person uh, singular suffix. So we're talking about my father. Melech is the Hebrew for king. So his name means my father is king. So there's great humor here as the author writes this. He says, Gideon on the one hand, back in verse 22, says, don't make me king. Then he lives a life as a, as a rich oriental despot. And then he has a son by a foreign concubine. And he names that son, my father is king. The author wants us to get the point that Gideon is in massive failure here and that his rejection of the kingship was just a sham. Furthermore, the word that is translated uh, concubine here is a non-Semitic word for a woman whose sole function is to satisfy the sexual desire of the man. And once again, we're going to see that as paganism increases in this period of the judges, women are treated, they're abused, they're treated as sex objects. Uh, Finally, we come to Samson at the end, and he's just a sexual predator. And there's uh, other examples of abuse of women. And see, it's only on the basis of Judeo-Christian, of a Judeo-Christian worldview that men and women can have a semblance of equality and a culture where women can have genuine, a genuine status as an equal bearer of the image of God. That all pagan cultures are going to put women down. That's a result of the, of the curse back in Genesis chapter 3, but only Christianity has the uh, ethical basis for reversing that. And so we're going to see that as any time a culture deteriorates more and more into a pagan worldview, then women become uh, sex objects, there's an increase of abuse, there's all kinds of negative things that, that begin to take place. And we see that today. If you go back about 70 or 80 years ago, not that there, wa- there was no abuse at that time or a hundred years ago, but there was very little abuse. Not, and when it occurred, obviously it occurred in, in circumstances where Christianity was not making an impact. But what has happened since the 60s is that there's more and more abuse taking place, and that's because the culture is no longer uh, anchored to a Judeo-Christian ethic. It is in rank paganism. So we're told that he has a concubine and and uh, just a, he, he takes a woman just for sexual pleasure, and she has a son, Abimelech. And then verse 32, And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age, was buried in the tomb of his father Joash and Ophrah of the Abizrites. Then verse 33, Notice what happens in Israel. It came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again played the harlot. They were unfaithful toward God. And they played the harlot with the Baals. Now, they just, as soon as he dies, they just go into full-blown, overt uh, idolatry and pagan worship. They played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. Baal Berith means the Lord of the Covenant. So, apparently in Shechem, there was a temple to this specific Baal. Baal is Canaanite for Lord. And Berith means covenant. And apparently there was... a the Canaanites had this view that they, in Shechem, that they had made a particular covenant with their God. And so, 
in contrast to worshiping Yahweh who gave Israel a covenant, they are going over to this false god, Baal, who gave a covenant to the Canaanites. So it shows just com- they are complete traitors to God. Conclusion in verse 34, thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. They didn't remember His deliverance. They didn't remember His grace to them. They didn't remember their salvation. They completely ignore everything that God has done for them. And uh, which shows that they have absolutely no gratitude. This is developed in verse 35. Nor did they show kindness to the household of Jeroboam. Now it is Gideon who delivered them from the Midianites, but they're no longer going to even honor him or treat him with kindness, which shows that they are ungrateful. There is no level of uh, gratitude or thankfulness on their part, and that is indicative of carnality and spiritual failure. And that brings us to a very important doctrine called the doctrine of gratitude. Gratitude is the barometer of our spiritual growth. And their lack of gratitude, the lack of gratitude in this passage, both by Gideon and the Jews, indicates that they are in spiritual failure. And the same thing is true for us. That is why... Whenever we are going through difficult times, our ability to thank God for all things and in all things is a barometer to us of how well we are adjusting to the grace of God in difficult times. So let's start this week with the doctrine of gratitude, and we will not get very far, so let's put that off. Go ahead and stop now, and we'll come back next time to look at the doctrine of gratitude as a barometer of our spiritual growth with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for this opportunity to look at Your Word and to see the horrible effects of paganism and that too often we succumb to the thought that surrounds us that is prevalent in the culture around us and we see here that the results of that are always destructive. Proverbs tells us that there is a way that seems right to man but the end thereof is death. And of course, the ultimate failure on man's part is to think that somehow we do things or that gain your approval, that somehow we impress you with our personality, that somehow we're good enough to gain your blessing. And Scripture tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that there's nothing in us, there's nothing we can do to curry favor with you, there's nothing we can do to gain your blessing, but that you have given that to us freely in grace. And the ultimate expression of that is that You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Father, we pray right now that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their salvation, that right now You would make that, they could make that sure and certain. You do that by simply accepting God's free gift of salvation. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Scripture says that all you have to do to have eternal life is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins according to the Scripture, was buried and rose the third day according to the Scripture. That the instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life. You are entered into the family of God. You have a vast array of spiritual assets and you have an eternal life that can never be lost. Father, we pray too for our, those here today who are already believers that we would be challenged by the tremendous task before us to make doctrine the number one priority in our life, that we might renovate our thinking according to Your Word, that we might glorify You in everything that we think, say, and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.